today, it's my great honor to invite Sebastian Strangel, and he's a journalist, an author, an analyst focusing on Southeast Asia. And since 2008, his writing from the region has appeared in Foreign Policy, New York Times, The New Republic, Forbes, and many other major outlets. And in addition to his journalism, Sebastian has become a leading commentator on politics in Cambodia and Vietnam. And his views have been quoted by major media outlets. And of course, that we know that recently he came out with a brand new book, and I happened to read that book, which I strongly recommend everyone to check out. The book is titled, In the Dragon's Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century. Sebastian, welcome to The Missing Piece. Thanks for having me. You know, as we mentioned before in the intro, right now the tension or even the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, it's it's getting more intense every day. You know, the whole world is watching. And meanwhile, I think China you know, has become one of the major important players in terms of understanding or maybe the international communities hoping that China can play a significant role in this conflict. So from your perspective, you know, again, you cover countries in Southeast Asia and you understand this political tension or ties between China and the other countries. Why do you think that in the midst of the whole chaos between Russia and Ukraine, China plays such an important role for this? Well, you'll remember that during, you know, in the early stages of the Beijing Winter Olympics on February the 4th, um, Chinese President Xi Jinping and his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin met in Beijing, and they issued, you know, a statement, you know, which promised to raise the strategic partnership between China and Russia to a new level. It was described as a partnership with no limits. Um, and then, you know, the day, you know, barely days after the closing ceremony of the Beijing Olympics, um, Putin sends in the Russian military into eastern Ukraine and begins, you know, um, a, a war of conquest against a sovereign state. Mm. Um, uh, so the question of what China's role has been and how much support China is offering to the Russians in this venture has been a subject of hot, um, you know, considerable debate. How much did she know about the likelihood of a war? Um, obviously, we all knew that there was tensions brewing between Russia and Ukraine and that, you know, that, that there were there were troops massed on the border. But it was, you know, many people um, failed to predict that he would actually go through with this in invasion. A lot mm. of people thought it would be against his political interests, that it was an insane gamble that couldn't possibly win out, given the the galvanizing effect that it would likely have and has indeed had um, uh, among the Western democracies. So the question is, was China duped? You know, mm. was it misled by the Russian government of Vladimir Putin um, into sort of providing this, you know, the, providing its... Uh, putting its signature on this sort of like new pact with Russia prior to the invasion. And I think that the Chinese right now are, are, are facing a very tricky diplomatic situation. On the one hand, they see a lot of benefits in their strategic relationship with mm. Russia, particularly given the broader context of hostility with the United States. Um, uh, in many ways, U.S. policy, I think, has pushed Russia and China closer together and, and made them see, you know, focus on areas of shared interest rather than areas of friction, of which there are many in the Russia-China relationship. Um, on the other hand, China also, you know, and Chinese diplomats constantly, you know, harp on this. Mm. China's foreign policy is built around the principle of national sovereignty and the norm of non-intervention. Um, so faced with 
you know, the, the, the armed aggression against a sovereign nation by a nation with which China is a loose strategic partner, you know, the government has been forced to dance between these two imperatives. And so we've seen, you know, very sort of vague statements, um, you know, expressing concern about the situation, calling for dialogue, um, you know, reaffirming China's support for the norm of national sovereignty, but also sort of um, focusing on the responsibility that the United States and the West has played in bringing about this conflict. Um, so, you know, China's in a very difficult situation. But I also think it's a mistake to see China as, as, as wholly in support of the Russian action. Mm. And in the West right now, we see a, a real polarization. We see a lot of Western nations saying, you're with us or against us. You're either, That's right. You know, you're either, you know, on the side of sort of you're, you're against the invasion of, of Ukraine or you're in support of it. And there's really no... Um, daylight um, uh, between those two points. And this has also, you know, been a challenge for the Indian government, which has been mm. pressed by its quad partners to sort of come out and, you know, join this Western um, front of opposition toward the Russian government. Um, but this is something that most nations in the global south have resisted. Um, and, and India, of course, is always a very interesting bellwether for the developing world and how it approaches these sorts of superpower conflicts. Um, mm. And the Indians are, are stubbornly hewing to sort of their, you know, their non-aligned and, and independent uh, foreign policy. Um, right. I'm no in, expert in Indian foreign policy, but it's certainly a tendency that they, you know, that, that they um, tend to view, um, you know, things in, in sort of a less starkly ideological way than, than some of their Western partners are doing at the moment or have had a tendency to do recently. Um, and so China's, you know, caught in a similar situation. I think that they are, are loath to, to wholly condemn the Russians because they feel like there's an important strategic partnership that they don't want to forswear. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you know, you know, China has spent the last two or three decades trumpeting the norm of national sovereignty and criticizing Western governments when they violate that norm mm. um, and, and, and making the claim that China respects it and that China as a superpower will, you know, um, will be more cooperative and more, you know, uh, respectful of the, at least the formal sovereignty of, of small nations. That is now on the line. And, and I think that China's, um, you know, wavering is something that will be very interesting to watch in the, in the, in the weeks and months to come. But I think it's, it's worth emphasizing that we really are in the early stages of this crisis. Mm. Um, you know, um, you know, we're barely two weeks into the invasion. This is a right. campaign that could go on for months. Um, right. And if it does lead to the, the armed occupation and, and installation of a puppet regime in Kiev, we could end up seeing, um, you know, a Russia bogged down in, in Ukraine for, for many years, um, given the, the likely insurgency that would spring up to resist it. So, you know, I think that, you know, China's position is probably likely to evolve and we should probably, you know, bear that in mind when we assess what it's doing currently. Sebastian, you know, it's interesting that we know that the military side in China has grown tremendously. And in the past few decades, and I'm sure that you also mentioned in your book, China's military power at this moment in the year of 2022, even last year, that has shown this tremendous potential and that has become a major threat, especially to the West. So in other words, China uh, um, today, the government intentionally try, try to grow this military power and try to let the world to understand that what the military power stands for. And this is something that could easily terrify the Western culture, you know, the Western hemisphere. But meanwhile, my question to you is, let's say if U.S. is 
either intentionally or unintentionally pushing Russia and China work closely, especially in terms of political or military uh, uh, collaboration. Don't you think this is a very dangerous path? So in other words, why do you think that U.S. is doing this? Meanwhile, they know that these two countries today are in this what I called untouchable phase. Well, I, I mean, I do think that it's potentially dangerous. I mean, you know, the the the, print, the basic principle of strategy is that you create, try to create tensions between your adversaries. And mm -hmm. at the moment, the tenor of a lot of American policy and Western policy, in rhetoric if not in substance, has been to uh, emphasize that. You know, Russia and China are partners in a sort of new axis of autocracy, or, or as, as the Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison put it in a speech yesterday, an arc of autocracy. Mm. Um, and that basically these powers are, you know, represent a monolithic block of authoritarianism, you know, and that they seek to sort of reshape the world order uh, in order to make it, you know, um, more, you know, to reflect their own image, which mm. is, a, which is the Again, the phrase that Marson used yesterday. I think that you know, focusing on the ideological, you know, um, commonalities between Russia and China, and ignoring the vast differences of strategic interest between the two countries, also ignoring and overlooking the the vast difference in the way that the two political systems in these countries, um, undemocratic as they are, operate. Um, I mean, there's really no comparison between the the mafia state of Vladimir Putin and the the rule of the Chinese Communist Party, which is you know is is, is much more structured and hierarchical, um, and institutionalized. Um, uh, you know, I think that the West is running a risk of mm. um, of you know incentivizing the Russians and Chinese to look at all of the interests that they do share. Um, and I think that this ideological framing will only succeed in pushing them together. And that would be dangerous because an alliance between the Chinese and the Russians, um, you know, could, could well, you know, it, it, um, you know, it, it's, um, you know, they're, they're much stronger together. Um, now one could ask the question of whether, you know, the, the, the inherent tensions between Russia and China, you know, will prevent such a, a close alliance from forming. And I think you could probably, the, the invasion of Ukraine highlights some of those points of tension. And so perhaps, you know, they're never going to become sort of like um, totally comfortable allies. Um, I think that um, Vladimir Putin's adventurism in Ukraine is something that the Chinese probably are a little bit annoyed about, given that um, they made this big commitment to Russia and and sort of such a reckless gamble on the part of Putin is, is something that now China is sort of being associated with in the eyes of many countries around the world. Um, and it, again, as I said before, it put, it in, put them in a very difficult situation. But, um, but I do think that, you know, the West should be trying to incentivize these two countries, you know, should, should be trying to widen the gap between them rather than mm. pressing them together. And I think that, you know, one good you know, example is the fact that Western leaders, including um, senior officials in the European Union, and again the Australian Prime Minister yesterday, they've they've come out and called on China to sort of put, you know, to to lean on Putin to sort of withdraw his troops and end That's the war right. in Ukraine. But this comes after you know years in which China has been sort of described as this sort of you know um, enemy and adversary of the West, mm. and as a country that is you know hell bent on sort of exporting repression around the world. Um, and so, sort of, it, you know, the the request for Chinese assistance in this, you know, sort of jars with that, you know, that that that, you know, basically, you know, if you're going to 
expressed that sort of hostility for years, you can't expect the Chinese are going to sort of turn around and do you a favor um, when you need one. And I think that that's, you know, there needs to be more of an awareness that, you know, um, you know, that China could be a useful partner in, in, in isolating and containing, you know, this spoiler state um, led, that is led by Vladimir Putin. But instead, you know, um, Western policies have contributed to, and of course the Chinese themselves, their perceptions obviously play a big role here in their own mm. actions and their own decisions. But Western policy has sort of, you know, um, has sent the message that, you know, um, you know, the, 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 the West, a lot of Western governments see China as, a, as an adversary and therefore, you know, that the China needs to find partners that share, you know, similar threat perception. And of course, Russia is one of those. And so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's sort of, it's hard to, you know, treat China that way. And then also to expect it to, to help when, when, when help is required. Um, and so, yeah, that's just one example of, of sort of the, the, the cul-de-sac into which I think Western policy toward these two countries has, has sort of retreated over the past um, several years. You know, Sebastian, if I'm sure that you also remember, back in the days during the Trump administration, the tension between North Korea and U.S. was in this unpredictable position. And both leaders, they exchange, you know, in words or in written letters. And they, even they, the conversation or the tension became so high and they began to threaten each other. And this time, China stepped in. And then China played a cr critical role and to smooth out the tension. Again, we don't know what happened behind the doors, but eventually that in terms of uh, controlling or in terms of reducing the tension, China actually played a critical role in, ter in terms of managing North Korea. Now, but at this time, this is something quite interesting. The tension or the relationship between U.S. and China today, it's not getting any better. <laughs> Let's just be honest. And meanwhile, the relation between Russia and U.S., is also on the brink of collapse. So in other words, why do you think the U.S. is taking this risk, you know, not to heal the relationship with the both partners, and meanwhile, U.S. is, it's, I, I, again, I don't want to use the word intentional, but it's somehow is doing the counter favor and not really bring the relationship together and not playing this mediator, but oh, but meanwhile, and trying to trigger or trying to provoke both countries to become angry, to be, become agitated towards the West. Why is U.S. doing this? Well, I think that, you know, it's, it's become a bipartisan consensus in the United States that the greatest strategic challenge facing the U.S. is China. Um, you know, I think that that perception um, underpinned the withdrawal of the U.S. from Afghanistan last mm. August. Um, I think that it uh, continues to be the primary focus and concern of President Biden's foreign policy team, um, despite the Ukraine crisis. But of mm. course, the U.S. is in a difficult position. You know, you've got Russia has invaded a sovereign nation, is is, is waging a war of aggression against its its Western neighbor, mm. and and so you know the U.S. I think quite rightly is is piling on the pressure. To, to, you know, I think that it's important, you know, that um, the violation of this norm be, you know, that, that that it exact a very high price. I mean, this is the bedrock norm of the international system, and I think it needs to be treated with that sort of seriousness. Um, but that has put, you know, the U.S. in the position of, of being, you know, of, of, of waging economic war against Russia mm. um, at the same time that it views China as the, as the greatest threat to American preeminence. Um, and so... 
you know, I, I think that if you're talking about U.S. U.S. China relations more broadly, I mean, there are two sides to this, and both sides have contributed to this sort of downward spiral of relations. Mm. Um, the Chinese have become very belligerent, you know, in, in sort of asserting maritime claims in the South China Sea. It become much more sort of outwardly hostile to um, the Western democracies and to you know U.S. influence more generally. Much more critical of American actions around the world. Um, as China has become more powerful, it is it has stopped biting its tongue mm. in response to Western criticisms and has become a lot more vocal and sort of asserting its interests on the world stage. And I think really sort of sending the message that it's it's it, it will not be talked down to by by West you know Western powers that it that it views as having once sort of subjugated China in the nineteenth mm. century and so forth. Um, so there's there's been a certain like ratcheting up of tension from the Chinese side. I think on the American side, what we see is a crisis. Um, of, you know, a crisis of identity, you know, as the unipolar world mm. that the U.S. You know, um, straddled from the end of the Cold War until probably the mid-2010s is coming to an end. You know, what does this mean for U.S. power? In a world where the United States will not be the unchallenged hegemon, mm. what does that mean for the idea of American exceptionalism that underpins American self-perceptions? What does it mean to be American in a world in which American norms do not structure the international system? And I think that the, the way that this has been processed by the American foreign policy and political establishment has been to depict the challenge posed by China and, and, and other powers as well. I mean, uh, you know, the, the increasing multipolarity of the world system to sort of frame it as a binary struggle between, you know, uh, worldviews, as, as a struggle between democracy and liberty and freedom on the one hand, as represented by the United States and its allies, and autocracy and tyranny on the other, as represented by China and, and, and other, uh, you know, other governments that are challenging American rule. And I think that... Um, I've always been critical of this framing. I think that obviously China, you know, is very authoritarian and that's, you know, a huge concern for a whole number of reasons within mm. China. Um, it's potentially concerning in terms of the export of technologies to other countries that could facilitate similar types of repression elsewhere. Um, but I think that, you know, China's actions are driven not by some imperative to sort of spread repression around the world. I think that um, China's actions are driven by fairly rational assessments of its strategic situation, mm. uh, the, the, the strategic and security challenges that face it, and a desire to sort of secure both the the sort of long-term prosperity, wealth, and power of the Chinese state, and also the domestic position of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think that a lot of the things that China has done, you know, is disruptive and potentially problematic, and and you know, uh, as they are, and 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 you know, the extent to which they could contribute to some sort of conflict um, is very real. Um, but despite all these things, you know, I don't think that they flow from the authoritarian nature of CCP rule within mm. China. I think that they, you know, they are some things that reflect what I believe any Chinese government would um, would be concerned with, you know, control over sea lanes of communication, control over China's coastline and, you know, concern about securing its, its long-term um, supply of energy, um, you know, breaking the stranglehold of the Strait of Malacca. I mean, these are all like fairly ideologically neutral strategic concerns that I think any self-respecting um, Chinese government would, whether that was a democratic government or, or an authoritarian one, would be concerned with. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the dangers of this sort of ideological framing from the standpoint of the West is that it might actually bring about the very thing that it seeks to forestall, which is that it you know, um, and I think this has happened already to an extent. I mean, you know, the Chinese Communist Party does view Western democracy as a threat. But part of the reason it does is because, you know, Western democracy promotion in the unipolar era has, you know, 
um, you know, was so self-confident and many, many places very aggressive. Mm. I mean, we saw the toppling of governments in the Middle East, um, you know, precisely on the pretext of spreading democracy and, and freedom. Um, and I think for a lot of countries, not just China, you know, this evangelical, this very, this armed um, missionary sort of project um, and the rhetoric that's accompanied that, um, you know, is very, is quite rationally seen as a threat. Um, and I think that that the more that that we go down this path, the more that the Chinese and the Russians and other non-democratic governments around the world, particularly adversaries of the United States, will begin to see a shared interest mm. in shoring up authoritarian rule as such and a shared interest in exporting and undermining exporting authoritarian forms of rule and undermining democracies. Um, and I think that we need to shy away from this framing for precisely that reason. I mean, you know, um, it could bring about the very thing that, um, you know, countries like China and Russia could begin to see a shared interest right. in an authoritarian right. internationalism, which, I, you know, is something that I don't think that they have a particular interest in, all things being equal. Um, and so I think that, you know, the beginning point, I think, you know, is the unipolar era, the delusions of Western supremacy, and also, the, you know, the, the, the idea that Western notions of, 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 of freedom um, could be universalized. Um, by through pressure, economic sanction, and and you know, in extremist uh, armed conquest, as we saw in Iraq. So, I think that a lot of what we see for, from from the Chinese government in terms of its sort of concerns about Western democracy and constant criticisms of that is sort of a reaction to this sort of period of hubris that followed the end of the Cold War. There's a bit of a vestigial sort of desire as well to sort of prove that, you know, Chinese communism is, is superior, but I don't mm. think that there's any real desire to export that system. Um, there's no missionary impulse anymore mm. in, in the way that the Chinese Communist Party views its political system. I think it's about, um, you know, offering countries the freedom to take their own path, mm. um, however repressive that might be. And that's a very mixed bag, obviously, as well. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's how I view it. I think that, you know, Western policies, you know, uh, I think needs to rapidly recalibrate and become much more realistic about the, you know, um, perceptions, uh, you know, uh, in, in the rest of the world. I mean, you know, the, the Western countries, as we've seen in Ukraine, have lined up you know, this established this very admirably, you know, um, united front against Russia. But right. in much of the developing world, from from uh, from India to to sort of uh, sub-Saharan Africa and, and Southeast Asia, you know, uh, countries are you know are, are more ambivalent and and you know are, are refraining from taking such a hard line. Mm. You know, as much as we can talk about the vulnerability of foreign policy from the Western side. You know, Sebastian, I have to be honest with you that not too long ago, I talked to um, another international expert on this China policy. Based on this person's per perspective, that it says, actually, on this China sovereignty side, it shows also its internal vulnerability. So in other words, the reason why China is so actively engaging with the international community, you know, countries in Southeast Asia, countries uh, in Latin America, it's only because China sees this slow growth, despite what we are seeing right now, what the other people are saying, this economic growth. But internally speaking, China is also facing this unpredictable or this uncertainty politically and socially. And meanwhile, you know, again, this is a country host 1.4 billion people. And, you know, it's it's rather difficult 
to to be a leader, even even just to guarantee that everyone can be satisfied or everyone can be happy under this regime or under this leadership. No, from your perspective, from your perspective, do you think that China shows this uncertainty or especially turn this um, economic or political shift? Um, but I, you know, I do think that the the Chinese leadership faces a huge amount of domestic problems. Mm. You know. Um, uh, everything from food security to regime security to, um, you know, the, the, the influence of ideas from the outside mm. to, you know, uh, labor unrest. I mean, poverty alleviation, um, you know, its legitimacy is based on rapid economic development and a sort of nationalist credential of sort of defending China's sort of legitimate rights on the world stage. And, you know, my, my fear, of course, is that as, as, the, as the domestic context becomes less hospitable for the current Chinese government, um, you know, it's, it's international behavior, it runs the risk of becoming more belligerent, you know, it's, it's sort of a way of, of, of distracting from that. Mm. But I'm not, a, I, you know, I'm not a specialist enough about, you know, the specific challenges to really be able to assess, like, you know, the extent to which um, they're a problem currently. Mm. Um, but needless to say, you know, any nation of 1.4 billion people is going to be a hugely challenging right. thing to hold together. Um, and, you know, and I wouldn't underestimate the challenges facing mm. the CCP in the, in the, you know, the medium to long term. Sebastian, let's talk about one of the important and critical countries in Southeast Asia, which is the Philippines. And if I'm not mistaken, the Philippines is also gearing up for the national election, and which is very critical, important. And so far, correct me if I'm wrong, Rodriguez Duterte has not said openly uh, regarding participating this election. So in other words, he's still holding this hesitant attitude. But meanwhile, we see this relationship, bilateral ties between China and the Philippines. Oh boy. Again, going back to the stage, it's hot and cold. You know, so it was hot before, but it's cold. Right now, it's cold, might be hot later on. So from your perspective, and I also, I know you mentioned in your book, how important it is for Chinese to pay attention this election happens in the Philippines. And also go back to the question, why does China play a significant role for this election? Well, I mean, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, the, the baseline sort of alignment within the Philippines security and policymaking establishment is is its close its alliance with the United States and a close mm. relationship with the United States. Duterte, you know, in some ways marked, you know, a departure from that. I mean, that's not to say that the Philippines has always had bad relationships with China, quite the opposite, in fact. Um, but, you know, Duterte, at a period of, of tension in the South China Sea, you know, he, um, for a variety of motivations, some of which, some of which are personal, some institutional, mm. um, uh, you know, decided to embrace, you know, um, to try and work with China instead of against it. You know, the idea would be that if, if he sort of downplayed the legal victory that, that the Philippines won at the International Court of Justice and um, not the International Court of Justice, the arbitral tribunal, um, if he downplayed that ruling, that victory, and, and sort of downplayed the tensions in the South China Sea, you know, he, he could benefit from the Belt and Road Initiative and Chinese mm. infrastructure funding, which was important for his domestic agenda. He also had a lot of resentments against the United States that, right. that drew from a long tradition of anti-Americanism, a, a minority tradition of anti-Americanism, it must be said, uh, within, you know, 
Philippine political history. Um, uh, and so, you know, this led to sort of a surprising turn toward China, which is, you know, again, sort of, you know, um, and, and concern in the United States about the future of the alliance. I mean, you know, he threatened to cancel the visiting forces agreement, which, which mm. governs the actions and, and, and sort of the, the, the deployment of American troops within the Philippines. Um, and canceling that would have sort of, you know, taken the operating um, system of, of sort of American troop deployments in the Philippines off the table. And it would have made it very hard for the U.S. to sort of, you know, it would have threatened security cooperation between the two nations. And um, in the end, he backed down from that. But I think that what we're likely to see in this election is whoever wins, we're likely to see a reorientation toward um, the United States mm. um, and and sort of, a, a you know, a reaffirmation of the alliance. The one exception, I suppose, and we really, there's a little bit of a question mark about it, is um, the front runner, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., um, who is sort of, you know, a loose successor to Duterte in mm. the sense that his daughter is running with him. Uh, Duterte's right. daughter is running with right. Marcos uh, as his vice president. And, you know, even though Marcos, uh, um, Duterte hasn't, uh, you know, formally endorsed anybody, it can be assumed that, you know, the sort of, you know, he, he's, his family has long had a relationship with the Marcoses and, and, an, and a political alliance that dates back to his, his days as, as, as the, the mayor of Davao City in the southern Philippines. This is a, a you know, long-standing relationship. One could assume that Marcos will, is about the closest thing that would, there would be to sort of a second Duterte term. Mm. Uh, and some comments that Marcos made seem to suggest that he would continue Duterte's sort of softer position on China. But, it, you know, it, 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 you know, there are questions. I mean, that's a very unpopular position within the Philippines um, in terms of opinion polls. It's the one area in which Duterte has been, um, Duterte's policies have been unpopular. Mm. This is stance toward China. Um, and so, you know, we don't know if, if Marcos actually wins, which he's, he's projected to do, whether he will actually take that policy or whether he'll do something more politically astute, which is to sort of tack back toward the U.S. alliance. Um so, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, China's playing an important role, but most of the candidates um, that are running have sort of nailed their colors to the U.S. mast and, and are fairly committed to, you know, a, you know, a revival of the of, of the treaty relationship with the United States. And I think that's probably most likely what we'll see. But as I said, Marcos is a bit of an unknown and we'll have to wait um, to see, you know, how things pan out on that mm. front if he does win. You know, Sebastian, this year actually comes up with the 10-year anniversary for Belt and Road Initiative. And within this international community, a lot of experts are saying that countries in Southeast Asia, you know, as we mentioned before, the Philippines and Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, uh, Laos, etc. These countries are actually looking forward to further their partnership in terms of uh, political ties and uh, economic partnership, you know, um, all these agendas with China. Um, given this condition that China, you know, under this Belt and Road Initiative, it's actually implementing a lot more project, not only domestically, but also internationally. You know, I'm sure that you are mindful, but for example, China invested so much in the countries of Laos and they built a railway, you know, so right now you can actually travel from one country's, uh, excuse me, one cities in China to Laos all the way. And of course, it's 100% paid by the Chinese government. But meanwhile, that really put a lot more countries in Southeast Asia under a tremendous pressure because they don't want to be played 
by China. But meanwhile, they know they cannot stay too far away from this country. So in this year, Sebastian, again, I'm sure you also mentioned your book. How do you think that countries such as Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, these countries, should balance their relationship with China this year? And should they just be, I don't want to use the word patronizing, or they should keep this positive and friendly, but meanwhile, they know how to keep a distance in order to avoid greater uh, conflict or, you know, economic unpredictability. What do you think? Well, every nation in Southeast Asia, you know, approaches China in a slightly different way. Every nation, you know, every nation has experienced Chinese power and interacted with you know, the various Chinese states and empires in different mm. ways, you know, and, and there are a lot of variables. I mean, geographic proximity to China, whether you share a border with it is a, is a big determinant. Right. Um, you know, uh, the extent to which nationalism has an anti-Chinese caste, as it does in some nations, but in others does not, um, you know, is another important variable. Um, the, you know, extent to which a country is democratic also matters to the extent that, you know, nations that are, are, are more authoritarian, you know, tend, you know, the, the governments tend not to be responsive to the public, and they are basically looking out for foreign alignments that can, you know, ensure their regime survives over the, you know, the medium to long term. Um, and so all of these things play into, play into um, how the various nations of Southeast Asia have, you know, have managed to, 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 to set their relations with China. I think that, you know, the main thing is to sort of continue to benefit from the economic relationships that exist. I mean, you know, China is the leading trade partner of virtually every nation in Southeast Asia now is an increasingly important source of foreign direct investment, um, especially large scale, hard infrastructure investments. Um, and this, of course, predates the Belt and Road. I mean, mm. a lot of these projects have been rebranded as part of the Belt and Road. Right. But really, you know, in, certain, in a lot of places, China was already doing a lot of this stuff. Um and, you know, how to benefit from all of those sorts of um, initiatives from, from, you know, the huge amount of trade and all of that, which, you know, China really is central to the future economic prosperity of Southeast mm. Asia, fundamentally, um, uh, while also sort of preventing, you know, uh, themselves from being sucked into sort of a Chinese orbit, a mm. new Chinese imperium, and, and sort of maintain a healthy diversity of um, foreign alignments. Um, and, you know, it's every nation... You know, that challenge exists at different pitches of, uh, you know, of tension for every nation. I mean, those nations that directly border China have always faced a much more, uh, have always, you know, tended to have a lot more anxiety about about what a powerful China will mean. I mean, the Vietnamese are, are, are of course, the, 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 uh, the prime example here. They live in, you know, exist in a, in a, in a state of in incredible tension. Um, also, you know, which is laced, of course, with this irony that, that, that Vietnam and China have also um, been so close to one another in, in many ways and that, that right. the Vietnamese have borrowed so much from Chinese civilization that, that you know, the, the two, there's a certain um, commonality that underpins this, this intense sense of difference um, there. Um, but for the nation, you know, then there's small nations like Cambodia and Laos, which have traditionally feared not China, but the nations to either side. So the, mm. the Cambodians have feared the Vietnamese um, and to a certain extent, the Thais. And so good relations with a large outside power like China make quite a bit of sense. The fact that there are large numbers of ethnic Chinese that migrated to Cambodia, um, mostly under the French mm. uh, colonial period, um, has also created a sort of sense of 
kinship amongst many Sino-Cambodians, mm. you know. Um, and there's not just the, the, the level of anti-Chinese sentiment in Cambodia is relatively low. So this has created a sort of hospitable environment for an extension of relations with China. Mm. Add on to that the question of regime security and Western democracy promotion efforts. And you see, mm. you can understand why Cambodia's relationship with China is so close. Um, but yeah, w- when you get out to nations like, you know, Indonesia and the Philippines, you're moving sort of, uh, you know, you're moving further away in geographic terms. Um, and, and the concern, you know, uh, in both of these places tends to be more, you know, maritime tensions. But in the case of Indonesia, particularly the the domestic position of ethnic Chinese populations within the country. Mm. Um, anyway, the, the, the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, each nation will have to strike this balance in its own way. Right. Um, each nation's domestic politics will filter the question of relations with China in different ways. In each country, it'll be, you know, you know, it'll be um, perceived in different ways. And I think that there, there's, it's very hard to sort of say that there's one thing that all of these nations should do, except to sort of say that they, they should strive for balance in their foreign relations. They don't want to be too dependent on China. Um, and, and this, of course, is why, you know, the region has tended to resist sort of any attempt to kind of enlist it into an anti-Chinese coalition of some mm. kind or, you know, um, that basically... Um, you know, it does not want to see the region repolarize as it did during the Cold War. I mean, there's no reason from the Southeast Southeast Asian perspective why nations can't have good security relationships with the United States and also fruitful economic ties to China. And I think that what these two, what this region really wants, and the Singaporeans have been very good at expressing this, is to, is for the Chinese and the Americans to come up with some sort of accommodation. Mm. Um, and to sort of, um, you know, the, the, to, to sort of damp down these tensions, to quell these tensions and to try and work out some sort of way of, of accommodating one another. I mean, I don't think that's likely to happen. But you see, you know, the Singaporeans have been quite good at, you know, directing criticisms in both directions. That's right. Um, you know, and I think that um, they've been very critical of the Chinese leadership for sort of, you know, asserting its its military power in, in, in disputed maritime regions um, they've also been very critical of the way that the Americans have, fray, you know, has, has sort of, you know, sought to, you know, frame this in ideological terms, which which sort of presumes a kind of, it almost like, yeah, it almost presumes a sort of showdown at some mm. point. Incompatible values can never sort of be, you know, be, be reconciled with one another. And and I think, you know, Prime Minister Lee Sien Lung has been quite um, eloquent in articulating sort of what I, what I would take to be a sort of Southeast Asian position on the way that this Sino-American tension is playing out. Um, but I think there's a lot of other powers in the region as well. The Japanese play a very important right. role in sort of offering an alternative to China without sort of falling too much into that ideological framing. They're very much more pragmatic in the way mm. that they deal with, like the Cambodians, for instance, um, than the Western Europeans and Americans are. Um, and then you have, you know, other pow- economic powers. You know, I mean, Russia is important in the region, um, mostly in terms of arms sales, but... Mm. Um, it also has, you know, um, older relationships that go back to the Cold War that are still, you know, that still bind to a large extent. Um, South Korea, Australia, the European Union is an economic presence in the region, if less a strategic one. And I think that, you know, you're, you, what nations should really be doing is, is sort of doing what the Vietnamese do, which is having this mm-hmm. omnidirectional foreign policy that seeks to be friends with everybody and enemies of none. Uh, and, and I think that that's, um, you know, you know, that's... You know, unfortunately, though, you know, a lot of what will determine what happens in Southeast Asia will probably not, you know, it's probably lies beyond 
beyond the region. I mean, it's decisions right. that are made in Beijing, Washington, Brussels, London, Canberra, Tokyo that that will have a huge impact on how the region develops. Right. And so it's you know there's only so much it can do. Um, one other point I would make is that the Association of Southeast Asian Nations ASEAN should try to become a lot more proactive in sort of safeguarding and asserting its strategic interests. And I think that's, that's of course, there's structural challenges to that. ASEAN has got sort of a consensus-based decision-making model, which allows any particular nation within it to essentially veto a course of action. Um, but, you know, the, the crisis in Myanmar has sort of revealed that ASEAN is, it's revealed ASEAN's shortcomings. Right. I think it's it's probably high time for ASEAN to retool itself for a world of multipolarity and renewed superpower tension. I think, you know, the period of the the sort of unipolar moment when ASEAN was basically a, a you know a forum for economic um, tweaking and and sort of inter economic integration. Um, you know that era has sort of come to an end, and it needs to start facing the sort of more dangerous world. Um, that has come into being in the last sort of decade. And, and, you know, that's something else that the nations of Southeast Asia should invest a lot of energy in trying to work out. Well, Sebastian, I want to end our conversation by going back to your book. And your book is called In the Dragon's Shadow, Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century. Again, as I mentioned before, after thoroughly reading your book, and not only that, I, I, I want to use the word educational, but also I think the bigger one, it's called eye-opening. I mean, in the book, you actually documented or you researched specific on so many countries that we just talked about before. So I do want to encourage our listeners, our viewers to grab a copy of Sebastian's new book because it's a very enlightening, it's a very very educational in many ways. If you want to study the power of China in terms of political and social shift in Southeast Asia. But the question to you, Sebastian, is your book is entitled In the Chinese Century. So I still want to ask, do you think mm. in the year of 2022, or even let's say the upcoming four to five years, would you still believe this will be or continue to be the Chinese century? If so, how would you define or what is the meaning of Chinese century? Because given the condition or given the fact, China has never officially claimed that we are the ruler of the world and we never want to take over any other countries or become the superpower of the world. You know, we know because in the Chinese culture, we believe humility and we believe, you know, uh, uh, try to, uh, uh, how can I say, to minimize myself in order to maximize, you know, others. But this is such a bold statement in the Chinese century. So going back to the question, would you believe this still the Chinese century? If so, how would you define it? Well, I mean, nowhere in my book do I sort of make, you know, mount an argument that it will be the Chinese century. I use that sort of in a, in a fairly loose sense mm. in the subtitle of the book. Um, but I do think that, you know, China will be the dominant challenge um, for the nations of Southeast Asia in the coming 78 years. Mm. I mean, this is an epical shift in the balance of power in East and Southeast Asia. Um, a return, you know, to, or, or arguably a closing of a five century period of Western preeminence that began with, um, you know, the Portuguese conquests of the 16th century. Um, and I think that, you know, this, you know, yeah, I mean, I think that China will remain the dominant power in this region. Uh, and, and how the Southeast Asian nations handle it will be their cardinal foreign policy challenge mm. um, for the next couple of generations. 
Um, and, you know, th- that's more or less what I mean by it. I mean, I do think that in many senses, the coming century, we want a multipolarity, increasing mm. multipolarity, um, uh, both globally and in Southeast Asia. But I, you know, uh, I think that for Southeast Asian nations, you know, the, the dominant pole will be China. Um, mm. Now, of course, there are many things that could disrupt that, um, right. you know, uh, but you know, that's how it looks at the moment. And um, even if China's economic growth slows considerably, it's still going to be a very, you know, um, important presence in the region and um, not unchallenged, of course, but um, but we'll cert- like I said, will certainly be the, the, the prime challenge that most of these mm. countries face.